Welcome to the Envision Together, Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I'm your host, Pamela Mishana. Join me on this bi-weekly journey of empowerment, where you'll hear hands-on advice from lifestyle experts, educators, authors, spiritual leaders, and many more who will share tips on how to triumph personally, professionally, and spiritually. We explore timely topics such as overcoming anxiety and fear, educating the reluctant student, cultivating lasting relationships, and strengthening our faith. My hope is that the insights offered on the show will help us envision ourselves using our unique gifts and talents on greater levels for greater purposes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Envision Together, going to our next level best. I'm so pleased to present today to you our guest, who is Demetrius Matthews, and he has lots of wonderful things to share about education, growing up on the rough side in Chicago, and lots of uh, information. He's a filmmaker and so many other wonderful things. But I'm going to go ahead and give him an opportunity to tell us more about himself in his own way. Anything you love to share with us that's biographical information, please. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, Very, very delighted to to, uh, have this uh, podcast with you today. And so I'm Demetrius Matthews. I'm a business owner. I've been in business for going on about maybe 19, 20 years. My background is accounting and computer science. I have an IT consulting firm that I've been running for like the last maybe 18 years. Becoming a filmmaker was pretty much was my passion. It was something that I kind of stumbled on. Coming from the west side of Chicago, uh, Mr. Kling, uh, being in his classroom for the last three consecutive years straight, that was pretty much a life-changing moment for me where he gave me the foundation as far as education. And that was during sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. But every time I tell someone I'm from Chicago, they always ask, how did you make it out? That's always been the biggest question. And so basically it always took me back to talking about Mr. Kling, what he did for us in our classroom. We were 35 students over throughout the class, broken down school. Mm-hmm. Chicago at the time was stated to be one of the worst school systems in the country during the Reagan administration. This was also during the the pre-crack epidemic Mm. as well. And so it was in the 80s. It was really tough. It was a different type of tough that we were going through versus, you know, other poverty now. What happened is that Mr. Kling, he he was going to school to be a lawyer. And he wanted to pick up a side job. Mm-hmm. as a teacher because anyone could get hired in Chicago. So he picked up a side job, became a teacher, and started teaching for the, for the next 35 years. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. he just left law altogether. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what, what was so profound about the way he taught us is that being fresh out of college and, you know, he pretty much turned our classroom into a college university he was our professor basically because he would purchase books for us with his own money and all the books that he had that we had he purchased for us and so we just wasn't taught the curriculum 
He formed debate teams with us. We discussed social issues. We talked about reparations during those times. We talked about the welfare systems. I mean, he would tell us a lot. We didn't really understand why he would always push us so hard. But he would say that we're going to be judged by the way we speak and by the way we write. And he always drilled that on us. Yeah. Let me interject here just a little bit. Before we go too far into who Mr. Klein is, I'm still gathering information about who you are. So can you give us a little bit more of your backstory? Like, what was it like growing up on the South Side of Chicago? Because I'm born and raised in California. And although I've heard things, I'd like to hear your firsthand account of what were some of the things you were facing? Well, it was actually a West Side of Chicago. Okay. Uh, West Side and South Side, is, they're kind of different in terms of, in, in terms of attitude, I would say. But the West Side of Chicago growing up during the 80s was, it was really a tough poor. What I mean by tough poor was like, there's kids in poverty right now today. But at the same time, too, it's just like a lot of poverty is kind of abstract, you know, where it's, uh, there's more things available, I think, versus back then. With us in mind, for example, is that everyone never had a father in the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no dads in the house. So my mom, we never know her to be with our father, but we knew we had a father and he would spend time with us too. Mm-hmm. But if there was a father in the house, she would get less money, you know, for uh, from public aid. Mm-hmm. And so none of my friends had fathers in the house. So right. to go to someone's house and they had a, the both parents, it was almost like weird to us. Okay. <laughs> it was like, whoa, I asked my friend, I'm like, oh man, your mother and father? That's your real father. You live there, you know. Right. I mean, so it was that type of it was that type of situation. But growing up, it was cool. Lots of family members, cool family members that kind of helped raise us. Did you know that it was tough, or that you were poor, or anything like that? No, I didn't. I never went to bed hungry. You know, my friends did. You know, they would come and pick me up for breakfast to go to school because they wanted to eat. Because mm-hmm. my mom would make sure they would eat. You know, I, I would stop by their house, and it was in shambles. To us, that was just the way it was. That was our life, you know. So when you say poverty is abstract today, you mean, in your opinion, it's not as severe as what you experienced? Yeah, I would say that. So kids have, I don't know, cell phones and... They have access to a lot of things, Mm -hmm. you know, which is the cell phones. I mean, $100 gym shoes. $80 gym shoes. They may live in a poor neighborhood or, you know, and the schools may be poverty, but there's still resources. There's still money coming in versus growing up in the late seventies and the eighties. It's, you know, your gym shoes was your uh, older brother, gym shoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He passed them down before the uh, drug trade too. There was just no money. Only way to get money is you go out. Kids would just go out and steal growing up in the West side of Chicago this was during a breakdancing era, too. But a lot of my friends, they would hop the train to go and break in the little parking meters to get the, the coins out of them. So that type of stealing, you know, uh, maybe the freight trains come through uh, our neighborhood. It was when the old, it was when the whole neighborhood got together. No one really knew what was in those boxes when they was busting open the freight trains. They just threw the boxes out. <laughs> and sometimes it would be pantyholes. Sometimes it would be. You know, you might get some gym shoes sometimes. You might get a Tendos and cat food. I mean, so like my neighbors and old ladies, they go walk across the street because 
it was boxes of cat food all on the tracks. They'll get the cans and boxes of cat food. And so it was just, it was just a neighborhood festival. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story I've never heard before. <laughs> yeah, so when the freight trains would come by. Yeah, because we lived right off the, we I've lived on this. Lake Street. I've yeah, heard of the government cheese stories and I participated in that when I was a kid, but the cat food story is a new one. <laughs> yeah, the government cheese. Yeah, we made grilled cheese. We would eat Wasn't so many that grilled cheese, cheese the that best, though? stopped up. Yeah. We're like, I wish we could get our hands on some government cheese right now. <laughs> right, yeah, a big block of cheese. <laughs> well, thanks for giving us a little more insight of about what that looks like when you were growing up in Chicago. So you refer to yourself as a social issues filmmaker. How would you define this title in your own words? I would like to see it where it's, it's the far as well, like a social issues, because this was supposed to be a book that I was going to write about Mr. Clean. Mm-hmm. And but I started as an investment, I started building music video recording studios. Mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons I started that is to keep my nephews and my little cousins out of off the streets and out of trouble nice. because everyone's into music. So I figure I can grab their attention and focus it and channel that energy and teach them how to run an office, to run a store, to record and make songs and make music, to record video. So I was touching the videos there and just kind of directing them to kind of keep it positive. I was doing that for like the last maybe eight years. Okay. And so I've, I kind of always had a hand in that, but never really exploited it to make that my main business. Right. And so having access to the cameras and things, I went to, I said, well, Mr. Clean, let's make a documentary. And he was with it. <laughs> and this documentary, it came out to be something of some of my greatest work one of my biggest, largest documentaries. And it dealt with a lot of social issues. It it raised a lot of questions. It raised a question that's just like, why schools in my neighborhood, you know, where I grew up, have no resources, no funding, no books, no computers. But then if you go five minutes away to a suburb, their high school looks like a college campus. And they have an abundance of resources. They have a abundance of computers and technology and books. You know, and the only thing is different is the color of our skin or maybe or they say that, you know, it's it's the neighborhood tax brackets or whatever. But if we all in America and we all Americans mm-hmm. and we all pledge allegiance to the same flag, why does this so country you, choose? You kind of indirectly discovered that your film work and documentary work could serve as a social justice tool. Yeah. I stumbled upon that. <laughs> this was started off just I wanted to do a documentary for my classmates for Mr. Clean and put it on YouTube so we can all say, hey, that's our teacher. This is how it started. You became yeah. a type of change agent and got some good, healthy conversations going on that could bring positive change to your community. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what happened. So tell us how the film then uh, moved you forward to seeing some changes made because of it? Well, hopefully that every teacher in the country could look at this film because when I talk to people, they have the same story, especially teachers. And they say that we're, we don't have resources. We do lack funding. So, and that's the whole thing is just like, 
what else would it take? Because Mr. Clean's story is every teacher's story. Do you have the opportunity to engage in some of those conversations with educators and parents? And Yeah, we, we met with a couple teachers. We actually uh, met with the teacher at Gowdy. Uh, after Mr. Clean uh, spent time with us, he went ahead and got a principal's degree and he wanted to become a principal. But they kind of blackballed him. Mm. shadow banned them a little way so he couldn't get a principal's job so they ended up giving him the library's job because he needed the money during the time that teaching us for those three years spending 10 hours a day driving an hour from the suburbs to teach us took a toll on his personal life Mm. where he ended up getting a divorce from his wife because he wasn't his home as much something that i later found out so with this new school gowdy that he attended he had the same effect on many other students. And so that's when we were talking to teachers. I'm like, whoa, I'm like, Mr. Clay, do you realize that this is part two? In a way, your documentary is a tribute to him as well, huh? Yes, it was, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So how important is education in the upbringing of our children? I, I mean, I can certainly elaborate on that topic myself, but for the sake of our audience and just hearing your own perspective, uh, what would you say to that? I think education is it's a poverty neutralizer. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that once I left eighth grade going into high school, I didn't learn much at all. But we were testing out of high school levels. By the time we were in seventh grade, we were tested out at high, over high school levels. And so it brought the attention into the Board of Education and to the mayor when they sent in the news station to cover our school for the next uh, year and a half until we graduated because our scores are so high. And when I left eighth grade and went into the high school system, it was more like many, many kids fell off. You know, my mom ended up taking me up out of school in my junior year because I was beaten by the police. And so she thought they was going to kill me. So she took me out of the school. So I I was basically in the streets for about a year. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get into school because she wanted me to get my GED. So I went and took my GED. I passed it and they realized, hey, you're only 16. You can't have a GED until you're 17 or 18 years old. Mm -hmm. So I just had to wait in limbo until I turned uh, 17 to take it again. Mm -hmm. And so that was that. And what I realized, too, is that when the crap hit the fan Mm -hmm. and I looked at me and I looked at my friends, it was just like I had more to fall back on. My mom was a poet. I wrote all the time. You know, I wrote poems all the time. I was very good at math. So a lot of things that I had in me, you know, Mr. Clean and my mom helped instill into me. Tell us about the making of Clean. Like, that's not easy. You got to find the money, the funds, the crew, and how you came up with the title. I think I can pretty much assume you just gave it the name of your teacher. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, After hearing more of what you shared today. But how about the first part of that? What was it like when you were making the film? What are some of the obstacles you all faced? And was there any political obstacles you guys faced or anything like that? A lot of people ask me that question, but I got to say it's divine. I lost my nephew to gun violence. And I just knew he had so much talent 
that he never really had a chance to express his talent or his creative energy. And so I decided at that point, it's like, you know what? I'm just going to write everything down on my bucket list and I'm going to get it over with. I'm going to give Mr. Clean his flowers while he's still alive. So I gave Mr. Clean a call and I say, I would like to do a documentary about you. And he's like, you know what? <laughs> Let's do it. So I put an ad out on Craigslist because I needed some extra help. I had all the film equipment myself. And I've always, like I said, too, it's just like I'm familiar with cameras and, and cinematography because I just love it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and I was kind of doing dog videos and documentaries, too, just for fun. So what happened is that I put an ad out and I gathered up another photo photographer and video guy. And then I had my assistant, Jerome, which is my assistant director and editor. And then I grabbed my little brother, who's 16 years old. And I was teaching him how to work the camera. And we all loaded up the equipment and drove to Chicago. And we rented out a hotel and we filmed for five days. Wow. Doing Mr. Clean. So I had to set up. Everyone was pretty new, wasn't really sure how to work the equipment. And so I had to frame the shot, set up, and pick the lenses. Then at the same time, be the person who's the interviewing and interviewer. And it was amazing. Okay. And we didn't skip a beat. It was all divine. It just, I could speak on it right now. It's like there was no challenges at all. The mm-hmm. biggest challenge where I would say that one of the, the hiccups is, is that out of our 30 students, we had about 10, 15 people that were going to be there and show up only two <laughs> oh, wow. after they all confirmed. And I'm like, whoa, what are we going to do? You know, so no one could testify except for me, Elroy and Eric. And so I ended up calling my cousin because she's she's a teacher. But I didn't know at the time that she had like two degrees and was going to, for her principal's license. And I said, I need you to come here and interview, interview Mr. Clean. And she represented CPS, which is Chicago Public School System, and had the dialogue with Mr. Clean and talked, and she just polished it off. Oh, wow. Wasn't even mm-hmm. planned. That's Makita Matthews. Yeah, so everything just happened just like that. So do you think by finishing this documentary and maybe sharing it around, would that have contributed to some of, uh, you mentioned earlier that he was blackballed, was that a story people didn't want to hear or? No, he was blackballed way before that. We released okay. the film last year. It's on Amazon Prime Video. It's on Tubi and a, and a few more of the uh, streaming networks. But Mr. Kling, I'll tell you an example. He always made us aware that we were black and that the system and part of this, a pop, certain segment of the population wanted us to not succeed. Mm-hmm. And as black kids growing up in a predominantly all black school in an all black neighborhood, he was the only white person that we were pretty much encountering, you know, as the teachers. And we were trying to figure out who was he talking about? Wait a and minute. Then, Let's stop right there. Mr. Kling is white. Yes. <laughs> you neglected to say that. That's important information. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you saw the film. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Clean is a white guy, grew up in a fluent, wealthy family. It's still good to share that. I didn't see the film, but it's still good to share that because my audience would not have seen the film yet, and they're just listening to our audio. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Mr. Clean is a white guy. (laughs) Okay. That adds another element that, to me, is a positive in this story. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of made his job a little so hard is because 
even when we were we were showing up, they were writing articles about us in school. And so he would bring these articles home and his wife was kind of against him because he was spending so much time with us. I mean, at times he would get a couple kids out of jail over the weekend. So he was kind of like our dad. Like I said, we didn't have a dad in the house. So to many of us, he was our dad. He had conversations with Yeah, he was. He had conversations about the young ladies when they first started having their monthlies. I mean, he was our a lot of cases. He was kind of our dad to a lot of students. He had it hard because uh, he saw as a white man how the white teachers would talk and treat their students, you know, and he would go up against the administration. He would go up against the staff members and they would report him. He would bring books to us like Kaffir Boy, which is which happened in apartheid. He talks about apartheid in South Africa. Right. You know, some of those books he would bring in, you know, a raisin in the song we read. Uh, lots of literature books that he brought in. I know why the cage bird sings, you know, and a black like me. A lot of these black authors always dealt with these racial issues that we knew that, OK, that there's more outside of our community that we're going to have to face as black people. Right. What subject did he teach? Was it English? Everything. He taught us math, English. Well, what um, was he hired to teach you? Well, see, he was our general teacher. So at that time in Douglas, in our school system, our main teacher, we didn't split classes. I see. So, yeah, we didn't split classes at all. So he would teach us English, math, uh, chemistry, biology, everything, every subject. Wow. That's why you guys did so well. You actually spent multiple hours with this excellent teacher. With the same teacher for three years. Three years. Three consecutive wow. years. You know, research yeah. studies say that if you have high-performing teacher two years in a row, your academic trajectory goes way up. So you yeah. all had them three years. So of course, three consecutive years. You were performing uh, so much higher than your grade level and. Wow, he filled in a lot of those gaps that you probably experienced prior to having him. Yes. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the students, like one of my best friends, he's the uh he works for the CIA in cybersecurity. Uh, we got another math professor. Me, I have counting and computer science degree. Like so many other, like a, a doctor. <laughs> yeah. All out of this small Chicago, the west side of Chicago school. Wonderful. So you've shared a lot of good information and we're coming uh, toward the end of our interview. But I'd like to ask you, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would really like to share? When we go back to the question about why was he blackballed? I think that after they did these three years and it was pretty much proven a success because we were a target pilot. I think they stopped it because it worked. And (laughs) He was blackballed because the way he he built the rep. He was in a newspaper. Mm. He had city recognition. So some of so, it was jealousy, or do you think some of it was even centered around racism? I think it was centered around racism. I think jealousy too, but I think it was more centered around racism. He exposed it. He exposed it, and he taught his kids. You didn't have teachers telling you at the school where we went to that you're going to, you're a black man. You're going to have to work three times harder than me just to keep up with me. That's what Mr. Clean would tell us. Okay. He say, I have a privilege that I didn't deserve. I didn't earn this. I could get pulled over and, and he could just shove, shove it off if I'm speeding. 
But you, when you get pulled over, it's going to be a different story. So he taught us about these things, and he he discussed racism. He also discussed worldly issues too. We talked about terrorism in eighth grade, you know, and before it even became talked about the Iran and culture scandals. I mean, so he was really bringing the social issues to a young-minded children, and it was more like I say, it was he it was he built it like more like a college classroom, like he was a professor. He really made right. you think critically about multiple Very aspects critical. of life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. good preparation. I think a, a really good teacher does teach beyond just their subject matter. They teach about the world. And even if it's like finance or how to keep good credit mm-hmm. or whatever tips yeah. you have, that's going to help young people do better. Yeah. Um, I think people who teach from a perspective of, what are the things I wish I had known? And they're trying to give that to the students that they're teaching. I think um, the students wind up with a more well-rounded education. Wow. He sounds like a a wonderful person. He is an amazing man. (laughs) That's great. And so I would assume that you're still in touch with him to this day. Yeah. I just talked to him. We just had another uh, Zoom meeting uh, interview uh, three days ago. Um, that's beautiful. I'm in touch with a lot of my. Yeah, so we're talking. I say a lot. I've had lifelong relationships with about three uh, here and there, being in communication of my former teachers. Oh, okay. So there's one question I ask all of my guests, and this is it: Which final gem, which would you leave with my audience today to help them get to their next level best around the topic we've discussed today? So if they forget everything else we talked about, what is the thing you really want them to hold on to? I want them to hold on to children education. The investment in children education is priceless, mm-hmm. you know, and teach them as early as you can to instill into them as much as you can, because we only have them for a certain moment before they become older. And then they have to make all of these decisions from this worldly information that they're getting from the outside. Let's pour as much as information and knowledge into these students as we possibly can and spare no cost. And like I said, too, is just that we live in a country that only educates a small segment of the population because of the color of their skin. That's basically I just wish that every school from the, the wealthiest suburban school should be equivalent, just as high a standard as the poorest uh, city school in Chicago or the South Side of Chicago or Compton or 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 East LA. All the school systems still have the best of everything. Yes. Agreed. Well thank you for that final Jim. That's a good one. You know, listening to you, uh it was making me think too about another issue in education today, which is um, you know, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It matters what's in your heart. Uh, are you willing to give all students what they need? And that's the issue of equity. And whether you're Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, no matter what your color or background, Mm -hmm. ethnicity, religious beliefs, if you are determined to give everybody what they need, and that's what it sounds like Mr. Kling did. Um, Yeah determined to give you guys what you needed. And you would need something different than the suburban children who did have perhaps both parents in the home. He became that for all of you. 
So yeah. uh, I wanted to point that out because I think there's a lot to be said about having educators around children who look like them. I think there's value in that as well. But I believe the educators who don't look like them can serve a great purpose too if they have the heart and mind to do so. And your story proves that. Absolutely. You hit you hit it. You hit it <laughs> on the head. Yes, yes. Okay. You nailed it. So finally, I'll just ask you, how can my guests contact you, stay in touch with you, get any books or even your film or anything that you have out there that you'd like people to be able to resource, so to speak? Yes, uh, you can find Kling on Amazon Prime Video under Kling, a teacher who defied the system. You can contact me on Instagram or Facebook. Just look up Kling. It should be there. Kling, a teacher who defied the system on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook as well. Wonderful. So I want to commend you too, because you had this excellent teacher, but you had to be an excellent student and receive what he had to offer. And uh, as a consequence, it changed your life, the trajectory of your life. And then I'm listening to you very carefully at how you have a heart to help your the young people in your family stay out of trouble. You're reaching back to help others. And I'm sure it extends beyond just your family, but just young people that you come in contact with. So yeah. I want to commend you for that as well. And I also want to thank you for reaching out and wanting to be a guest on my show. I think that we have certainly collaborated and had a conversation that my audience will find value in. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And you're very, very welcome. This was great. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours about Mr. Kling, so call me. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, friends, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Envision Together Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I hope today's topic inspired you to envision a brighter future getting to your next level of best and to urge others to reach theirs as well. If you are encouraged by today's episode, subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Also, please write a review. It will help me to reach a wider audience with a message of hope and inspiration. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, envision the future you want to see.